Hello and welcome to Truck Spotting, a podcast about economics, culture, logistics, labor, and pretty much anything else that catches my eye. This episode is going to be available from Monday, February 14th. My name is Aaron, my pronouns are he and him, and here we go. This last week I've been hit pretty hard with COVID and I'm still a bit muzzy-headed and my voice doesn't feel like it's up to snuff. Last week I recorded in a hurry because I could tell my throat was starting to burn. My partner developed a rash that first looked like a shingles outbreak, but it ended up being one of those your immune system decided your body is its enemy problems, and uh, my issues were mainly fatigue, inability to really think, and an esophagus coated with mucus for almost a week. It finally broke this morning, allowing me to write and record this. Since I haven't had any time to do actual research, I'm going to talk about me, about why I'm doing this, what motivates me. Well, outside of a highly developed sense of outrage I inherited from my mom. And, I mean, honestly, my dad as well, though she was always the one to really express it. I had a family of old-school activists, one involved in the civil rights movement and the other a bra-burning feminist, but that really wasn't my motivation in this. That was just the environment I grew up in. Honestly, for... About the first decade of my adult life, I didn't really get involved in anything. I mean, what could I do? I attributed that to uh, I attribute that today to the typical Gen X attitude. I'm convinced of my gri- that my generation grew up chronically depressed. We grew up in the age of Reagan with some really cool things, but the smallest of scratches revealed the underlying rot. I grew up with magazines, not TV, and I can't recall a time that I was not well aware of climate change. Yet, nobody did anything about it. And there were issue after issue that uh, there were similarly. I mean, for uh, be well before Katrina, for, you know, all of the 80s, I heard about how, uh, how uh, uh, New Orleans was not properly protected from a direct hurricane strike and that and i mean she shoot that happened you know really not that long ago and nobody ever did anything about it and it was just one thing after another like that i could see manufacturing jobs being sent abroad and with highly paid people talking about how it was because oh american workers were so greedy that they drove the companies overseas to places where American laws didn't hold sway, so workers could be exploited and the environment destroyed. Even at a young age in early elementary school, I could see that if it was the wrong thing to do here, it is just as wrong to do it somewhere else. Hurting people is hurting people, no matter where you are. I remember in middle school writing to a local union, I, I forget which one, asking why, if this was such a problem, they didn't organize in other countries so that nobody could be exploited like that. It would help preserve jobs here while helping people around the world. I actually got a response, and I marvel that I did get a response. I mean, as an elementary school student, writing some hard questions. Um, and, but the answer, the, the, the response kind of crushed me. Um, the response was because the unions weren't inter- weren't actually international, even though some of them had it in their name. In most places, organizing unions was illegal, and it just wasn't worth it. And 
the unions were there to to uh, protect their own members and not really them and not really people overseas. Now, I thought, and I still think today that that's largely a cop out. I mean, after all, we had pitched battles here in the U.S. Whether it was against city police over laws against holding public rallies in the streets or Pinkertons running trains with machine guns through worker encampments. We even had union-on-union action here back in the day. During World War I, the international flavor of unions such as the IWW brought great persecution with groups such as the American Legion forming paramilitary patrols to hunt down the ones who resisted supporting any war. And really, that was all I knew about union history. Unions were founded first on the blood of dead workers in factories and mines, and then on the blood of dead workers when the authorities waged war against them. The fact that unions actually won concessions made labor unions basically the only successful uprising in our country's history. That's my view in middle school, and in large part I continue to agree with that. And my view has expanded to include anti-imperialism, such that I question whether it is actually appropriate for American unions to organize abroad, because it seems inevitable that it would be turned into another version of white man's burden. Uh, but, you know, I, um, I, 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 think it's, uh, I, I think that we should allow other people to speak for themselves and to, and to determine what they need. So, um, so, you know, I no longer feel that we should just be sending people overseas to start unions and start trouble there. Um, but, and now I know that there are many anarchist and revolutionary movements in the global south that draw on the tradition of, say, the international workers of the world, but without being formally attached in any institutional way. And I think that that inspiration of local groups is a far better way to go. And yet, for all of this, none of that brings me to where I am today. I'm not really into arguing theory or reading dozens of books on increasingly obscure isms or whatever. I understand theory to the extent that I explore it. I, and I get it. I'm a piss-poor leftist. But I never claim to be focused on anything but fighting to get people the help they need. I used to work in the finance industry. After I graduated into the Great Recession, I was drawn into the world of insurance. I focused on senior health and life products because my parents were aging into Medicare and nobody knew a thing about it. The the experience was soul-crushing, but not for the reasons you might expect. I was an independent agent, repping many companies with various products, doing what I could to match the needs of people to the products that best suited them. I didn't worry about my commissions, because I wasn't a captive agent, I didn't have any quotas, and I was free to pretty much do anything I wanted to shape my business. I was certified to sell specialty projects such as products such as Medicare and Medicaid-related products, partnership long-term care products, stuff like that. My undergrad included classes on anthropology of aging and other classes focused on topics of healthcare, aging, and medical stuff. But what I knew intellectually um, did not protect me emotionally from the impact of it, of walking into house after house and seeing older people, often without family or other support, needing far more help than I could ever offer. 
of going through their needs and current situation regarding, regarding Medicare and prescription coverage and hearing that all they wanted was enough money freed up each month so they could eat a meal every day, only to have to tell them that they already had the best coverage and that literally there is no coverage that could offer them what they needed. I never learned how to build a wall to protect myself from that. I wasn't a social worker. None of my training prepared me for it, and honestly, I'd never had the ability to build that kind of separation. And uh, to this day, uh, uh, over a decade after leaving that world, I still have trouble sleeping because I see their faces. I, I see their faces. I, I hear their voices. And, I, I mean, it's been going on for so long. Why, why, and the thing that gets me is, why do we as a society allow this to go on? I mean, this isn't something that's disappeared. Two years ago, my partner and I were going to the Walmart in Joplin, Missouri, the one at Rangeline and 17th Street. There's a Panda Express on Rangeline Road right in front of the place. Um, we went through the drive through picked up some food, I drove to the Walmart parking lot, which the the original the uh, the original store was demolished uh, in the her in the tornado, and they rebuilt the building past that. And the where the original footprint of the building is is where the current parking lot is. So it's a ways away from the road, actually. Um, and so we we drove to the. Uh, front of the parking lot facing the entrance. My wife has a handicap placard. She uses a wheelchair to get uh, long distances and, yeah, walking, get going into a Walmart and going around there is a long distance. Um, and right next to the entrance was a man, obviously homeless, had a cart next to him, surrounded by bags, laying propped up against a building. He was slumped over, covered by a blanket. We watched person after person literally stepping over him, sometimes looking down at him concerned, but nobody stopping to check on him. From where we were at, we couldn't see any sign of life. Neither, neither of us could sit there looking at, at that scene, so I got out our wheelchair and we went over to him. He indeed was asleep, even though from close, even from close up we couldn't tell that he was breathing. It turned out he was blind and diabetic. We could see the sores on his legs. He could barely walk. We offered him our untouched food because we weren't able to eat just, you know, watching this. And we asked if there was anything he needed from inside the store. He thanked us, but he didn't want anything else. So we went inside and did our shopping. And again, he's, when, when I close my eyes at night, I still see him there. I know that right now, with my meager resources, I don't have the capacity to give people like him the help they really need. My best is to offer a few bucks here and there. But that's why we have a society, right? That's why we have communities, right? So that together we can pool our individually small but collectively large resources together and ensure that this doesn't happen to people. It requires people with specific training to help someone like that. Social workers, therapists, doctors and nurses, dietitians, whatever. Uh, you know, it takes a village, right? Not just to raise a kid, but to take care of each other. But even that is, but even that 
just the fact that there is that need is because there's neglect in the system. There's a reason he was left homeless. It was a process. And intervention had been needed at some point, and it never came, creating a cascade of failure. Maybe it was a job loss following the tornado. Maybe he had owned a small house but hadn't been able to afford proper insurance, and after it was, and after the storm, the land was sold for pennies on the dollar. I don't know. That's just something that I know happened. It happens after a lot of natural disasters. That is when the wealthy get a lot wealthier off of the misery of others, building new communities that the old residents couldn't afford to live in. And where do they end up? Some of them, particularly those who might already be predisposed toward depression or some other thing, they end up on the street, not able to see a way, not being able to say, see a way out and spiraling down. And good luck managing diabetes under those conditions. It's an ugly disease that steals body part after body part if you let it. Eyes, toes, feet, legs, bit by bit. As someone who himself has battled chronic depression, I can tell you, it does not take much to push you over the precipice into self-destructive neglect. We live in a predatory society, one where we blame people for not having per perfect information. One where we look at what a what a deal that we find, without questioning how the deal arose. Since its inception, our government has underwritten the acquisition of land for the private profit of individuals and businesses. That land was acquired at the expense of others. Now, I've heard it put that there was one fair land deal done in this country, and it was the acquisition of the state of Pennsylvania by William Penn. Everything else was done at the barrel of a gun. More great wealth was generated through slavery. Today, more wealth continues to be generated by slavery, both legal and illegal. We foster a school-to-prison pipeline for the profit of companies. Law enforcement is there to protect the interests of the moneyed against everyone else. If a company steals from you, law enforcement tell you, tells you it's a civil matter. When you steal from a company, it is a criminal matter. Consider an employer not paying for all the hours you work, compared to, say, you as an employee stealing from the company. Both are theft, pure and simple, but only one will get prosecuted. And that is the society we live in. That is who we are. I don't like that. I don't like who we elect to office. I don't like how we choose our government. I don't like how we do redistricting with politicians able to pick who their voters are. I don't like how we elect a handful of people to make decisions on our behalf. I don't like how we manage capital markets. I don't like how we rely on private insurance rather than society-wide benefits. I don't like how we tie dignity to life to specific roles in the marketplace. And as someone who holds a graduate degree, but work for the first 10 years of adulthood before getting it. I don't like how we say that a few years applying yourself to classroom work somehow means you deserve benefits others haven't quote-unquote earned. Because believe me, the person busting their ass juggling jobs during the years you spend in the classroom did far more work than you did. School was damn easy compared to most jobs I held that decade. The fact that I was good at school doesn't entitle me to anything. Anything I get now is no more than anybody else should receive. The fact that I'm seen as privileged over those without a degree shows how exploitative our system is. The extra money I might get 
comes from the labor of others as well as my own. I get that extra responsibility and specialized skills are worth a premium, but that premium should not be a multiple of what others make that I might manage or supervise. If it, is a, if it is a multiple, it'd best be because my fellow workers think that it is worth that much, and not because whomever I report to just wants to make even that much more than I do. Once exploitation is normalized, then society becomes predatory. The exploited are exploited because of who they are. Oh, they failed to thrive. They're not victims. They chose their path. Anyone could choose to excel in school and get into college and obtain an MBA or a JD or an MD or a DEO or become a software engineer or whatever. But they didn't, so screw them. Forget about them. They failed at life because they wanted to be a teacher or enjoyed waiting tables, which, by the way, is something I do enjoy doing. Or like working up to their elbows in mud. The minute something bad happens to them, throw them away. And that is how you get a diabetic, blind, homeless man wrapped in a blanket trying to sleep in front of a Walmart in Joplin, Missouri. And that is wrong. It is unacceptable. <clears throat> and we need to build a system where we look around, see someone else falling down that hole, and stop it. Whether it's pr by providing new housing, or health care, or therapy, or all the above because otherwise it is a society that fails. Now on Twitter there's tons of discussions about this or that approach to leftist politics, top-down versus bottom-up, this book and that book, and don't forget this whole list of authors over here. Don't talk to me about, ther about theory. Talk to me about results. Talk to me about how you about how what you are promoting is going to help right the ship and how it can be implemented bit by bit today because the people hurting today can't wait 20 years for you to build out your revolution. Now, on this podcast, I try to offer solutions, even as I point out symptoms of the problem. There is no magic bullet. I, I, I like worker co-ops as a strategy, obviously. I mean, I've talked quite a bit about them. Without a million or so people contributing a few bucks a month, that's a very slow build-out to help free communities. I like unions, as long as unions don't give up their weapons to protect themselves against unforeseen problems. I like revolutionary politics, such as the DSA, which, pushes to, which works to push for candidates willing to radically rebuild how we deal with various issues. There are good things out there. There are many people reaching out to try to fix problems together. I think that there are a lot of angry people out there. Anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Anger is a motivator. It pushes you to get something done. It is how the anger is used, what it is used to oppose, and the process you use to take action that determines whether it is good anger or bad anger. If, no, if nobody gets angry, nothing really changes. We get angry because we recognize the predatory nature of our current society and we lash out, but often we don't recognize the actual cause and we just go with our gut. Oh, this negatively impacts me, therefore this must be what I am angry about. Or, I disagree with this, so it has to be the cause of my anger and I must stomp it out. It is possible to be angry at something that is not about social depredation, and I don't mean to discount that, but in my observation, and I am speaking as someone who has training in analyzing the words used by others and describing life events and motivations and power relationships, 
Most of the anger I see expressed around me springs from unresolved conflict with society's priorities and is harnessed by one group of elites or another as weapons against other people as a distraction from what is actually going on. There is and always has been class warfare, prosecuted from the top down in various ways. And of course, the minute you try to mount resistance to it, the gaslighting begins, because it is never class, class warfare until you fight back. Just like identity is never political until you bring up anything that's not well represented in the adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. If you look at who advances that narrative, you can see that it is nearly universal among major news outlets. If you look like a certain type of person, you are spoken of like Black Lives Matters, and the outsiders there to cause trouble make the highlight reels. If you look like a different certain type of person, you are spoken of like the Freedom Convoy, and the coverage largely ignores the arson and violence or how much of the support is a disruptive foreign influence seeking to weaken certain governments. Remember that the struggle for workers' emancipation is a global one, just as the elites are themselves international. These companies are international. They're multinational. They have been behind colonialism from the very beginning. We can't remove them from history, but we can continue to weaken them for the future. Although you could argue that much of it is bound into European colonialism and imperialism, our country, my country, the United States, was born in it and has never repudiated it and continues to push it so that the elites in our system grow in power and wealth at the expense of more and more people. It is incumbent upon the people of our country to help undermine and dismantle what we can here one victory at a time, however small, limiting the power and influence of undemocratic forces. We have an exceptionally powerful society, and it is not too late to use it to unbalance the system that preys upon all of us. And we have to start by building a system that helps one another so that we can all have dignity. Thank you for listening to this. If you like what I do and want to support my causes, you can join my Patreon. This podcast is always free and ad-free and entirely listener-driven. If you don't think it's worth a couple bucks, I respect that, and I thank you for just listening. <laughs>